private Folio Voice listeners, welcome back. We're so glad you're here to join us for another great episode. For this episode, sponsored in part by Hills, I'm joined by Dr. Jenna Manaki to talk about esophageal feeding tubes, or E-tubes, and how they're a useful clinical tool that we may be underutilizing. So before I tell you about my guest, I want to take a short little walk down memory lane and tell you about a sweet little puppy that I got to call mine, unfortunately, for way too short of a time. His name was Fred, and he was, of course, a yellow lab who was brought in for euthanasia at just a few weeks old because he had a huge cleft palate. So without going into too many details, I had done a lot of euthanasias around that time, just a lot of euthanasias in general, but several had been on like young dogs and puppies who were really sick and had other issues going on. And I just could not bring myself to put this little one down. So the owner agreed to surrender him. I somehow managed to get a feeding tube into this little teeny tiny guy and we started feeding him and he got stronger, he did better and eventually we were able to attempt his soft palate repair and we we did his soft palate repair and he did really well with it for a period of time. But unfortunately, sad spoiler alert, as is often the case with these these really big defects, it did start to split again. And after about eight months, I had to say goodbye to Fred. It just wasn't fair to him. He couldn't go be a mouthy lab that was chewing on everything. And so I, I had to go ahead and put him down. But I did feel like at least we were able to give him those eight months where you know, he was happy, he was spoiled, and he was super loved. But anyway, I digress. I tell you all of that to tell you that there were a lot of feeding tube placements during that time, at least more than what you would expect for, you know, one patient. And there were a lot of tube feedings. This is a procedure that I feel fairly comfortable and confident with. And despite that, I still tend to drag my feet a little bit when it comes to placing them in my patients. So it was great to talk to Dr. Manaki. a good reminder that this is a fairly short and easy procedure that can carry loads of benefits, but I will let her tell you the rest. Let me tell you a little bit about her and then we'll go ahead and get into the episode. Dr. Jenna Manaki is a small animal clinical nutrition resident at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. She completed her undergraduate studies at the University of Guelph, receiving a bachelor's degree in zoology with a concentration in nutrition. She attended Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine and completed her clinical training at the University of Saskatchewan. After graduating, Dr. Manaki practiced in small animal clinics in Phoenix and Toronto before pursuing her clinical nutrition residency at Mizzou. Her special interests include nutrition for critical care patients and enteral nutrition. Perfect for someone who wants to discuss feeding tubes on this episode. Let's go ahead and get into it. I'm excited today to be talking about e-tubes. I feel like I've been hearing more and more about this recently and really important topic. So I'm joined by Dr. Jenna Manaki. Jenna, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you to talk about, you know, like we said, a a really important topic and that's E-tubes or esophagostomy tubes. So let's start super basic. What are some of the indications for an E-tube? 
we love our e-tubes here at the University of Missouri. I think we probably put in two to three a week, especially when we're really busy. And we love them for anorexic patients. So patients that haven't eaten for three to five days or patients that we know are probably not going to be able to eat by mouth. So things like cats with renal disease, pets with DKA, hepatic lipidosis, patients that have had oral surgery. So some of our dental patients get them or our um, oncology, surgical oncology patients. Patients. So we use them a lot here. I never thought about dental patients, but I guess, yeah, there's probably maybe not for like basic extractions, but some of the more advanced procedures that really being a useful tool in those patients. Yeah. Broken jaws, severe stomatitis while they're healing. If we don't think they're going to want to eat by mouth, they're great tools for us to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're talking about putting in two to three a week, which I would say I've put in my fair share of E-tubes. I really like them, but I don't think I've ever, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's something that I do commonly. And it sounds like maybe it's something that we should consider more commonly, but what do you think the barriers are to putting these E-tubes in? I think a lot of veterinarians, um, we don't necessarily get a lot of training in vet school on how to put feeding tubes in. So it can be a daunting task, but once you learn how to put them in, it's actually a, a very fast process. Doesn't take a lot of time under anesthesia. I think one of the other barriers is how do we communicate to the owners, how to deal with the feeding tube, do the feedings. And I think you have to think of it almost like a diabetic consult where you're probably going to need to spend a good 45 minutes with them in a room. But once they have it down and you show them how to use them. It's, it's usually pretty straightforward uh, to teach somebody how to do a feeding tube. Absolutely. And I have to agree with you as far as the client education, um, I'm going to tell a, a personal anecdote here for a minute, but I had a little cleft palate puppy for a little while. Um, unfortunately, despite his repair, his palate ended up splitting again. So it was not a long-term relationship, but we, we did get him some good quality of life for a little while. So during that time, while we were trying to repair his palate, I placed and replaced a lot of E-tubes. I agree with you, a pretty simple procedure once you get the hang of it. But the thought of having to explain to a client, you know, what to do and how to maintain that and feeling like you've explained it in such a way that they're comfortable with it does seem like a really daunting task. Do you have, you know, just kind of some good tips of how you communicate with pet owners about how to maintain these tubes? Yeah, usually what I do, especially if the patient is hospitalized, is I give them a call ahead of time. I will email them a little like introductory handout with links to YouTube videos. There's quite a few clinics that have great uh, YouTube videos that show you how to use the tube so that they kind of have an idea of what it's going to look like before they even come in. And then I tell them, you know, before we send your pet home, we're definitely going to sit down, you know, book half an hour to an hour of your time and and we will go through everything and I think seeing it takes a lot of the stress out of the whole thing so don't just expect them to go home and know what to do (laughs) (laughs) good advice good advice I love the idea of the videos I never thought about using YouTube videos I think that's a great idea okay so another type of tube that is used fairly frequently is an NG tube, which usually does not require anesthesia to place it. So why would we reach for an E-tube over an NG tube? 
Yeah, NG tubes are great, I think, for in-hospital short-term um, feedings and water administration. Sometimes it's hard to get medications down them. That's why we like the larger size to the E-tubes. The E-tubes tend to stay in place a lot better at home. I, I don't like to send anything home that's going down someone's nose that they can rip out really easily. And it's easier to keep them clean. We can fit thicker slurries, which means we don't have to rely on those really expensive liquid diets, which are great for NG tubes, but we can do better. I love it. And you mentioned the different diets. I mean, I've, I've certainly used like the recovery type of diets to go through the E-tube, but do we have other options besides that? Absolutely. Here we play around a lot with our different slurries that we make, but you can use kibble, uh, you can use different types of canned foods, and we can do better than that 0.9 kcal per ml if we use things like kibble or canned food. So our critical care diets, they usually range from 1.1 kilocalorie per milliliter to 1.3, and we've gotten it up to 1.3 to 1.4 kilocalories per milliliter if we use a kibble. And so you just soak the kibble in water and like and blend it up and then we can put it through the tube? Yeah, usually what we do is we'll measure out, let's say 100 to 200 grams of the kibble. Uh, we usually blend it either in a coffee grinder or just alone in the blender until it looks kind of like graham cracker crumbs. And then we'll usually add in about double that amount of water, warm water. So if we're doing 100 grams of kibble, we'll first try with 200 milliliters of water and blend it up. And then you look at the amount of slurry that it's made at the end and divide it by the number of calories you put in. And then you can figure out your calories per milliliter. It seems not as, not as scary and daunting and complicated as it, as it is in my brain. <laughs> it's not too scary. And, and depending on what you have in your clinic, some work better than others. We always like to leave ours out for maybe 15, 20 minutes. Some of them turn into blocks of jello and those are obviously aren't great for putting down a feeding tube, but we have our consistent go-to foods, but it's, it's nice because then you can try hydrolyzed foods for pets with allergies. You can do low fat diets. You can do kidney diets. So don't be afraid to try uh, and play around with your blender. That's such good advice. There's so many options out there that I never would have considered. So what about the types of uh, E-tubes? In the past, I will admit I've used red rubbers for the most part, but what other options do we have out there? Yeah, I think red rubbers are great. And that's what I used when I was in private practice as well. The problem with red rubbers, if you're not doing it, cut the tip off because sometimes that little hole at the bottom of them can really cause issues when you're trying to get a thicker slurry through it. They can also kind of harden, which I'm sure most vets that have used red rubbers understand. You pull them out of the drawer and all of a sudden they're super hard and not flexible anymore. Mila makes a couple different types of feeding tubes. They do have really nice polyurethane tubes. And then you you can get, I think it's just basic medical grade silicone tubing that we use here most of the time. We call it silastic tubing. Uh, and that's nice because the, the suture grabs onto it nicely and it comes almost like in a reel. So you can just pull a length off and put it in. So not expensive. It's actually probably cheaper than using a red rubber or a Mila. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Like totally customizable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Does it come in different diameters? It does. There's uh, three or four different diameters and the internal French can be anywhere from 16 French is what we use for most of our kind of medium sized dogs. There's a 12 French internal diameter for cats and small dogs. 
I love it. And good guidelines for sizes. Cause that was one thing when I first started placing e-tubes that I picked way too small of a red rubber. Cause it's intimidating. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to need something a little bigger than this. Yeah. If you can, I would always try to use at least a 12 French tube. If we're using a critical care diet, sometimes we can use a 10 French, but 12 French is usually the best size. After doing lots and lots of tube feeding myself, I have to 100% agree with you, <laughs> at least a 12 French, if you can do it. Yeah. We've, we fit up to 20 French in our Great Danes. So <laughs> they Absolutely. Can get pretty big ones. <laughs> we talked a little bit earlier about client communication and how to communicate with them about maintaining the e-tube, but how do you talk to them initially about putting one in? I mean, clients, a lot of times hear feeding tube and it sounds like this, you know, scary invasive measure. So how do we help clients or pet owners wrap their heads around this concept and be okay with it? Yeah, I, I think being open with them about the complications, we have to put them under anesthesia, but letting them know that in the long term, it's something, you know, you put it in once and we don't take it out until we're 100% sure your pet's going to eat on their own. And there's a lot of really important uses that we can use it for just instead of just feeding. Um, but once you explain to them that, you know, you want them to have a full belly and once they have a full belly, then they probably want to eat more on their own. A lot of people kind of warm up to it. There's definitely certain people that take to it better, uh, especially, you know, retired people, people that work from home, people that can do three to four meals a day tend to warm up to it a bit more. But a lot of people, they just want their pets home. And once you explain to them, hey, if we put this feeding tube in, you can do a lot of what we do here at home, then they, they warm up to it a lot more. Absolutely. Absolutely. We also talked a little bit about formulating like a kibble diet and how to divide up your calories and things like that. But what are some considerations we should keep in mind in terms of how much to feed through the tube at a time? How many meals do we have to divide that up into? That is a really, really good point. I think a lot of people get kind of gung-ho and excited and try to feed a lot all at once. We usually start our pets at one-third RER uh, split into three to four meals a day. And the reason for that is we don't know how much volume their stomach is used to. Obviously, when we're watering down foods, it's going to be a larger volume. You want to start at five to 10 milliliters per kilogram per meal. So uh, that's a fairly small volume. That's usually actually fairly similar to your one-third RER divided into four meals a day. Our top number that we kind of get wary is 20 milliliters per kilogram per meal. That's kind of our max stomach volume. So we don't really want to go above that or else we might risk nausea or vomiting. I, yeah, I have been guilty of that. I'm <laughs> getting a little too gung-ho and um, I did have a patient vomit, but I learned my lesson the first time and it never happened again. And we got that feeding tube out of that patient. She did wonderfully. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I recently had a case where a feeding tube was placed somewhere else. And so the patient came to us with a feeding tube and it was kind of, it was a referral situation. So we were kind of going back and forth, managing this patient. And next thing we know, we find out this feeding tube, it had been in place for several weeks. And our initial reaction was, oh my gosh, we need to get this thing out of there. But actually the feedback we were getting was that the tube was actually fine to stay in place for the length of time that it had been there. 
And, you know, there wasn't really like a maximum time frame that they were concerned about. We just needed to get, you know, this patient back to eating. Is there a maximum amount of time that you would recommend keeping a tube in place or an indication where you would say, this is, this is a hard indication to pull that tube and get it out of there? Yeah, most of our patients would probably only have their feeding tubes for two to three weeks at a time. But if the owners keep it clean, so if we send them home with some dilute Chlorhex and clean around that stoma in the neck once or twice a day, they can stay in for two to three months. If they keep really good care of that feeding tube site and the pets are doing well, we can even keep them in for up to six months at a time. As long as that the tube itself looks good, and there's no signs of infection. I'd want to get it out earlier. If the pet is eating and there is an infection around that stoma, then obviously we don't want that to spread or get worse or make them feel bad. We have cultured MRSIP, unfortunately, here out of our feeding tube sites. So keeping it clean, um, keeping it covered and keeping it dry is really important. And yeah, I think we were at like five or six weeks at this point when we were having this discussion. And I have to say that the site looked pristine and that was exactly the feedback we got. They said, as long as there's no infection, the site looks good, the patient's doing well. And, you know, the patient was improving. They said, keep going. It'll be, it'll be fine. Yeah, as long as the patient's doing well, if it sounds like it's something this pet is going to need for longer than three to four months, then I would talk to to an internal medicine specialist. And sometimes we can put in peg tubes or, or Mickey's for lifelong feeding if we have to. Sure, sure. I remember seeing a few of those placed when I was working in the ICU before vet school and, you know, very low profile wrap them up type of tubes. It's amazing what they can put in these days. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Are there any contraindications to putting in an E-tube? Any situations where we would say this is not a good idea? Yes. I think the biggest contraindication is if they have something going on with their lower esophageal sphincter. Obviously, we place our E-tubes to be above the stomach technically, so we need that sphincter to be able to open and close normally for us to get our food into the stomach. So here at Mizzou, we have a lot of patients. We're kind of known for our mega esophagus evaluations and surgery, so those patients can't get E-tubes, obviously, because their lower esophageal sphincter doesn't work. Anything with neoplasia, uh, so if we we're worried about any esophageal or gastric cancer, then we probably shouldn't put in an E-tube. If they have uncontrolled vomiting, not ideal. We want to get that under control before we try to feed through an E-tube. I think that's that's most of it. If we're going to put them under anesthesia, obviously we want them to be as stable as possible. So I wouldn't try to put in a feeding tube until we have all their electrolytes and, and hydration corrected. Absolutely. And thinking about the neoplasia that you mentioned, I'm sure there's multiple concerns that go along with that, but are, are we primarily concerned that if we put a tube, you know, into a neoplastic esophagus or, or, you know, like you mentioned gastric neoplasia, are we worried about it not healing? Are we worried about disseminating it? That's the biggest thing is not healing. I actually had a case the other week where we were trying to put a G-tube in and we hadn't realized the cancer had spread to the stomach and then they couldn't close the stomach after they made the stoma. So obviously we want that to heal. And in esophageal tubes, they heal, they get a fibrin seal really quickly, like within 24 hours. So it's not usually a big deal, but obviously if, if it dehisses or something bad happens, then infection can spread and that's not ideal. Absolutely. It'd be a disaster. Well, Jenna, Dr. Manaki, this has been, I think, just a really helpful conversation when it comes to E-tubes to kind of break down the barriers, make this procedure a little bit less scary, and then give us some good guidelines for how to use them. So 
I really appreciate all of your input. Are there any final tips, thoughts you'd like to share with us? I just like to share, don't be afraid uh, of using them. Remember that you can always use them for medication administration, even after they're eating. You can use them to add water, pets with renal disease, stuff like that. If they tend to get dehydrated, you can leave the tube in a little bit longer until we get their kidney values under control. So there's a lot of different uses for them. Don't be afraid to use them. Don't be afraid to talk to clients about them. We love them here. And I now that I've been using them, I don't want to stop using them. I want every pet to go home with a feeding tube if they're not eating well. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And then you can predictably make sure they're getting exactly what they need. Exactly. Which when can we say that? Pretty much, pretty much never. (laughs) Pretty much never. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, wonderful. Fantastic advice. Thank you again for joining me for this discussion. I feel like it's going to be really useful for everybody. Great. Thank you very much. All right, guys, go forth and place feeding tubes with confidence. Thank you so much, Dr. Manaki, for joining us. Thank you to Hills for making this episode possible. And thanks to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.